0: Welcome to Relevant Parties by Carhartt, Work in Progress. I'm Char Ravens, and in this series, I'm going behind the scenes at some of the world's best independent record labels to meet the visionaries and the obsessives who've made musical history. In each episode, we sit down with one of these label founders to find out what makes them tick. We hear the tall tales and big ideas behind some of the most influential records and scenes of the past 30 years, and maybe try to work out just what possessed them take on one of the most challenging jobs in the music industry. One thing that unites most of the record label founders we've met on relevant parties is that they're not really musicians. Some of them dabble, plenty of them DJ, but more often than not, they seem to maintain a kind of awed distance from their artists, recognising, perhaps, that whatever talents and personal quirks make them cut out to run a label are pretty different to the ones that make you a recording artist. So with that said, cut to Adrian Sherwood, a label boss who has done things differently right from the start, paying no heed to received wisdom on who should do what and how, When he launched On You Sound just over 40 years ago, at the height of the genre mix-up that Bob Marley called the punky reggae party, he had ideas of his own about where dubs should be going. So only just out of his teens, he got behind the mixing desk and gave it a go. Within a few years, Sherwood had put out a dozen or so records that still stand as some of the most groundbreaking and genre agnostic dub recordings ever made. From acts like Creation Rebel, African Head Charge, Singers and Players, Dub Syndicate, The Missing Brazilians, New Age Steppers, and Tackhead. Well, who were they? A lot of the time, all of these bands were the same musicians. Drummers and bassists like Style Scott and Doug Wimbish, Jamaican exports like Bim Sherman and Bonjo Ayabingi Noah, punk singers like Ari Up from The Slits and Mark Stewart from The Pop Group. Total wildcards like the free saxophonist Lowell Coxhill and New York punks Annie Anxiety and Judy Nylon. And even multiple appearances from the dub icon to rule them all, Lee Scratch Perry. But ultimately, everything that appears on On You Sound is an Adrian Sherwood record. Right from the start, he had a vision for every sound, every bass line, which he'd sometimes hum to his bassist as a starting point. And as a renegade producer, he steered the label from one innovation to the next. From a vision of psychedelic Africa, to industrial hip-hop sample collage, to intergenerational dubstep with Bristol's Pinch. So what I have to get across is that there are a lot of records in the On You catalogue. And an incredible proportion of them are essential. You need to go and listen to them. It's that simple. To me, they capture a really important moment just after Punk had blown down the walls of record business with the first independent labels and after Dub had transfigured the producer's studio into an instrument in its own right. That germinal moment is really at the core of every label that we've covered on this series so far. Our new sound just got there a little bit earlier. There's a lot to cover. Uh, We do get through a bit of it, but there is plenty more out there if you're ready to go down the rabbit hole. And of course, you can check out our Bespoke on new Sound playlist on Spotify for a taster. So I called Adrian from his home in Ramsgate, a little seaside town in the east of England, where we laughed about his total rejection of computer technology, uh, including Zoom, which he downloaded for the first time to do this interview, making him possibly the last person on earth to have to do a Zoom meeting. And we talked about how Reggae's concept of versions upends the usual ideas of songwriting and ownership, and how London has changed since his squatting days with Ari Up and Nena Cherry. Going back to... London in the late 70s it's such a mythologised time I suppose and to me I think Ony sort of represents something that was happening culturally not just as like a label but almost as a kind of artistic environment in a sense and one that I think is very alien certainly to me in terms of how I think of London now where London culture is basically just like shopping and restaurants and things or it was before lockdown um so I wonder if you could just kind of clue me in to like what your life was at the end of the 70s when you were I guess squatting I mean basically I want to know what the squat was like <laughs> give, give me a little sense of what your actual life was like at that point
1: basically I um I was living in um High Wickham in Buckinghamshire, which is... Uh, I was born in London, but I went to school in, in Berkshire, in Slough, and then High Wycombe, because my dad had died when I was very little. My mum um, ended up moving around and then got married and ended um, up in High Wycombe. So I came to London again when I was about 19, 20, and I was renting a place, and then in uh, when I was 20, I met Harry Up. When we were I was 21... The Slits, Ari, and the Slits invited our band to Croatian Rebel with Prince Hammer to tour with them um, on on their album launch tour to promote their debut album. And I I didn't really know her before the tour, but she'd been at our gigs. So I rephrase it, and we became really good friends. And I I started going round her house, and I met John Lydon, who was is is Ari's. Stepfather, I suppose you could say, is is um, married to Nora, and uh, I think Nora wanted to get Harry out of the house. I don't like to say this, but she ended up one day saying, because <laughs> I had, I had a little room in in Notting Hill, in 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 uh, Road, there, a little you know cheap flat room in a shared place, and her mum opened up the squat. Nora did she used to zip around Battersea on her roller skates and in those days if you didn't have anywhere to live there were lots and lots of empty places you could buy a house you know in London for 20-25 grand you know Um, for nothing it was incredible Uh, but it was completely different times interest rates were, were very high um there were social economic problems as there always will be because they tend to create them and uh a lot of people i knew my friends were squatted i wasn't like some big squatting champion but Ari said oh nora's captured a house you know come and stay at the house <laughs> so i went there with junior my friend who ended up fathering the twins that Ari had pablo and pedro and also uh Nana Cherry who was in Ari's uh, care kind of she came she's like 16 or something 15 16 and um her parents let her stay there as well which was quite mad so for several months we had this uh this squat that was um but that background to the the 70s with how things were it, it was very exciting because the music industry i suppose started in the 50s really you know, for teenagers anyway, because prior to that, teenagers didn't have um, a lot of disposable income. Mm. Suddenly they they aspired to own all these great new records being made, go to the gigs that um, were happening. And by the time the 70s came, you'd had previously to that, like a lot of bands playing in pubs or superstar bands playing in big venues and everyone was just like now, just trying to get noticed. And I'd come from the reggae world where parties had to be held because of the racism and difficulty. They'd be in, in houses or um, they'd hire a town hall, have a sound system dance. And, and it was kind of pioneer times because a lot of people hadn't done tours of Holland. I was involved doing one of the very earliest tours of reggae in Holland with our Dutch uh, partners we worked with, uh, called Midnight Records, Roy Lemmer and and his crew and David and Ricardo. And with Prince Faro, we went there when I was like 20 or something like that. You know, uh, and and prior to that, there wasn't really a network. So London at the time, a lot of people squatting, uh, not easy to get work, not easy to get noticed. And... But there were lots and lots of record shops and lots of very cool record shops, specialist shops doing soul music, record corner, Balham, reggae shops everywhere. And suddenly there started a whole uh, thing of people being able to put their own music out. And that was where it got very exciting. With the Rough Trade starting, which was heralding a whole new beginning for me, where You'd go in there and these wonderful white people, because I've been I've been dealing with lots of white people, it wasn't black, white, but these wonderful people were paying you as you went through the door with your boxes of records. And I met Daniel Miller. I'd go in there and there'd be the Smiths or Mark's Mark e. Smith from the Fall or different you know um the Raincoats or This Heat. There'd be different different people inside this building, all mixing, selling their wares. Daniel was selling his first record out the back of his car where he lived at his mum's. And we were selling reggae. And it uh, was a meeting point meeting point and very, very healthy time for me, very exciting. And, um, I mean, social history-wise, I could wrap it on a bit, but it was, you know, I wasn't planning to get all the different people together as I did with On You. It's just I started meeting all these great people from different backgrounds and lots of them wanted to get involved or, or, you know, immersed in the reggae world because they loved it. And for me, it was brilliant meeting people from different areas who had different instruments they played and a different outlook on sonic. Uh, You know, an approach to distortion overloads that weren't present in reggae and which is where I... Which what I'd been immersed in. And bit by bit I got to meet you know countless brilliant people and people were squatting. Very few owned their own place. Lots of them had come from Bristol. They were living near the nearest train station. Paddington. West London. Other people had come from other Scotland everywhere. London was and is, you know, very multi multiracial and also It's everyone's capital. People were coming from Cheltenham, like I said, Scotland, the North East. And I'm just very glad I lived through that period because it was very exciting.
0: Tell me a bit about the role of reggae in that culture then, because I suppose, like I say, I mean, that period in in London's history is often mythologised as a punk era, but a lot of the punks were listening to reggae, right? So I guess when you were actually involved in that scene, I mean it must have felt as though you were kind of, I don't know, onto on on something a bit secret or a bit better. Was it still quite kind of an, a niche thing that like a sort of an avant-garde thing in a sense?
1: Well, I, I never thought of reggae as avant-garde or anything at all. I, mm. I just, um, I grew up at school and we were listening to Motown, James Brown and all the, all the pop records, you know, Rod Stewart, Gary Glitter. <laughs> it was like, it was like you know every, every um you know we were into everything, and then the reggae started coming, and I just got so into all this mad. Firstly, the kind of crazy stuff, the the rude reggae records, then the gimmicky ones, then the songs, then the dub uh, version, then dub. And at school, my friends were into like Pink Floyd, or or other people were telling me, oh listen to Yes, or listen to Love. Or listen to whatever it is. And I was like, "Jeez, it's horrible!" I was, gonna, <laughs> I didn't like it, you know. And some of them, I'm sure, they were pretending to like it, even though they didn't. But a few of us were hardcore fans of black music. Really, I used to travel to Luton to Dunstable to the California ballrooms and watch some of the great soul artists ever. And then I travel downstairs to the Devil's Den, and then we stayed at friends' houses in Luton to Jamaican house parties and blues parties. The same in the town I grew up in. I used to go to house parties and blues parties in High Wycombe. And before you know it, you're addicted to it. And when we came to London and, I, and all the other music was going on, everybody was curious. People were but Reggae fans weren't going, oh, I want to go and hear, you know, Throbbing Gristle or perhaps yeah, right. the Sex Pistols <laughs> or something, but or the jam. But a lot of the people, like the same venues, they put the same shows on. So... The Hundred Club is a good example, which was where we did lots of our our shows. We'd play there was um, an old couple, Ron and Nanda, and they promoted Thursday nights and my friend actually from High Wycombe, he did Tuesday nights, so we could go in there anytime we wanted and Tuesday night was punk night. You go in there on a reggae night there would be John Johnny Rotten would be in there listening to the reggae. he certainly wouldn't have gone to the you know to the, to the Tuesday night events i remember the vortex the vortex was like really you know sham 69 whatever and i remember one night they pulled out of the gig and it's like oh, can you come down there and do a show with jar whoosh so we did a show a reggae show in front of a completely hostile crowd who were respectful enough not to try it on with the jamaican lads but it was funny the kind of cross-fertilization and people playing on the same stages together that's what kind of happened
0: so as the story goes you were you were pretty involved pretty young you were already distributing records specifically you were you'd become a funnel for records coming from jamaica and you were selling them in shops around the uk right so you were deeply involved in in a sort of diy network
1: i guess we were also manufacturing our own records in england and distributing other labels manufactured in england And we imported some as well from Jamaica.
0: Right. Okay. I mean, it's honestly quite hard for me to imagine how you would organize all of these things, like <laughs> without email or without whatever. You must have been extremely busy. Basically, I was also thinking, just on a practical level. I mean, I've read about the fact that you basically organized the Prince Farai record to come out in the UK. Right. How does that happen, though? How do you actually end up on the phone, maybe, to Prince Farai saying, "Yeah." we'll sort this out, like how did you get from a kid who wants to kind of get involved in stuff to actually being like the, the liaison between these kind of amazing new Jamaican records coming out?
1: Well, I, I worked with some older Jamaicans. My, my um, like the person nearest to a father I ever had was called Joe Farquharson. Joe died a couple of years ago and he, we were, um, he basically shaped my life. He he, he, um, he had a club in High Wycombe called the Newlands Club or the Twilight Club, which is actually where David Rodigan started his first ever DJ event as well. But that was years after we'd started. You know, it, 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 I started there in seventy-one when I was thirteen. and I think Rodigan played there in seventy-nine when he's be quite a lot. He's quite a lot older than me, but they, um, but uh, as well. But uh, Joe. Um, I previously worked for Palmer Records in the 60s, which is uh, a big reggae label and Jamaican owned. And I knew the Palmer family through Joe from being 13, 14, 15. And they gave me work in my summer holiday. And eventually I ended up working for the Palmers. And we started with another friend, another Jamaican friend called Chips. We started a reggae label. And it was through them. It wasn't because I was phoning up somebody immediately, but I made the contacts. And even to this day, it's how good your phone book is and how many people you know and who you can call. Because I'm today making some music in the studio and we're doing stuff online. I'm able to phone uh, my friend Gaudi in London to do some keyboards, Doug Wimbish in America or Keith LeBlanc. And last week we, we had Horace Andy voicing and finishing an album in Jamaica. This is the modern world. In the old days, you couldn't do that. Um, so you'd be hustling for studio time, waiting for cheap studio, waiting for the right man or woman to arrive to do an overdub or a vocal. Um, but it worked. You know, everything worked. You just used your time differently and were much more focused on what you actually had to do with, with the maneuvers you had to get people organized
0: so you had a couple of label projects before on you itself got started right so there was carib gems and 4d rhythms
1: yeah firstly i, I had a company called carib gems i was a junior partner and i selected a lot of the stuff it started out as a roots label and one of the things one of the tapes i selected was the prince far-eyes debut album psalms um and then we had met right. We didn't get it from him. We got that from a chap called Pete Weston, who's a a big micron music in Jamaica. And then I met Prince Far Eye in Birmingham. And that's, that's another whole story. But we got on very well. And after my first ventures went wrong, Carib Gems and our distribution company, I was still only 19. And I'd already done two years trying to run a label and trying to run a distribution company. And then I started one called Hit Run with my friend Pete Stroud, Dr. Pablo, and we were we made a couple of albums in England almost for a laugh, but uh, but John Peel, bless him, he loved one of them, and it got me started as a producer. The other things I licensed, and after a couple of years of more of licensing, up until I was the last thing I licensed, I was twenty one. I, I thought I don't really want to do this anymore. It's too much grief dealing with nutcases. Not all of them; some of them are the most delightful people, but having people, you know, phoning you up saying, come on, you'll do this, do this, do this, you want to do this. It's like, you know what? I think I can actually make a living making tunes for myself. And that spurred me and gave me the confidence, you know, really thanks to John Peel, Steve Barker and people like that. Other great old friend of mine, the um, longest running radio show in, in, in the country. They, they encouraged me and said, oh, we like the records you made yourself. And I just uh, bluffed and blundered my way along. (laughs) That's how I started. You know, I didn't know what I was doing.
0: So by the time you had On You Sound, did you feel like you had a specific vision for it? Because you're obviously still very young and you didn't necessarily have that much experience, but you must have felt that you knew what your taste was and why that was different to other people's in some way.
1: Well, On on You started, by the time On You started, I'd I'd met the slits, I'd met, John Lydon, I'd met um, Keith Levine, I'd actually met Wobble as well, you know, the, the Pill Lot, briefly at, um, with Jumbo at Virgin Records, um, and various other people, the Raincoats, I'd, I'd met lots and lots of people at Rough Trade Shop, Daniel Miller, on, on and on and on, non reggae people. And when, when On You started, I'd, I'd, the biggest influence on me really was Mark Stewart, the, the, the pop group singer who I went on to work with quite a lot. And I'd loved um, reggae gimmicky stuff and silly records, but by then I was studying great songwriters. You know, obviously, Bim Sherman, I was a huge fan of, great songwriter. Bob Marley, Gregory Isaacs is a great songwriter. Joe Higgs, Pablo Moses, Bob Andy, on and on and on. They, They were all really good songwriters. And I didn't want to... I wasn't making records. I want to have a hit. I want to be successful. I didn't honestly didn't care at all. I just wanted to do good work that had, um, even if it was instrumental, had some political thing about it, just by the way it was put together and its its sonic and how we did it. But all the songs on the label were all well. Most of them we attempted to, to to pull out a original stuff. Although the first release was a cover of the great Junior Biles song, and develop our own sound. Well, I wanted to get my own sound, because it put you in good stead, but also always attempting to record, if we did lyrics, vocals, something challenging and uh, positive and good lyrics.
0: So pretty quickly, you were doing a lot of stuff in the studio in terms of controlling the broader vision, I guess, but by bringing people in... To, to To perform those, you know, various sort of tasks and creating collectives and so on. Can you tell me a bit about the very early days of actually being in the studio and going from, you know, finding records, selling records, being at the label side to suddenly being in the studio more? What was your kind of learning curve in terms of learning how to mix?
1: What, what I did, quite simply, was to... Um make the decision firstly that I didn't want to licence other people's music and try and run a label Mm. because um, I wasn't particularly good at it. So I I thought what I was going to do was produce music, use the name On You Sound, which was uh, someone I worked with called Brady. he came up with the name, which was a play on the words of Onus or Very Important, whatever. And we said, okay, let's go with that. Let's start doing some productions and hopefully place them with bigger labels. This was... How it started. I I put the first record out, and I was—I thought I had the help of Rough Trade, but Jeff Travis didn't want to do the second album or the third one. So I suddenly left high and dry, and in quite bad financial shape, owing money from uh, my previous ventures, and it was a lot of money to be honest. So what I did—I started getting credit off recording studios credit off record presses, credit off the printers that printed the sleeves and borrowing off Peter to pay Paul and then doing a really bad deal with a company called Cherry Red promising to make six albums for them for like £1,500 an album. I was spending more making the album than I was getting paid for them and I'd lost all the rights to these bloody records, but I had to keep going. So the studio sessions themselves, I would have six multi-track tapes or seven piled up. In the room, I would have the great Steve Beresford, Bonjo from African Head Charge, Crucial Tony, there'd be Lizard, there'd be backing vocalists, other instrumentalists, a keyboard player as well, another keyboard player, all in a room. Everyone would be smoking, doing whatever, having beers from the pub in this underground studio called Berry Street. Mark Stewart, Harry, different, different people, George O'Ban on bass, all in the room. So what I would do, I would then get one tape and overdub the percussionist on two tunes. Then a second tape, overdub him on two or three. And then maybe one of the other tapes. Then it would be the guitarist's turn. But they all had a different concept in mind. One was going to be African head charge. Another singers and players. So I had a defined idea for each project and how I wanted it to sound. And I would then spice them all up by using the people the eight or 10 people who were just hanging around in the other room getting stoned and then bring them in bash <laughs> them down and try and do as much as I could in the few hours I'd blacked and by the time I finished I was owing 10,000 quid to one studio 3 to another 4 grand to a record press and if you bear in mind if I put all that together I could have bought um I could have bought a house from yep. the debts I was in, so I was a, <clears throat> a bit of a nervous wreck, but i didn't I didn't flinch, and I just stuck to it and kept going mm-hmm. until I was about twenty five when I was debt free
0: wow what well, what did it take to actually become debt free just actually being able to sell copies of records?
1: Well, we started getting a bit more popular yeah um Daniel Miller gave me a depeche mode remix to do oh. Uh, which was uh, eighty, you know, with the first ever remixes in the early eight eighty three.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and the money you gave me for that, um, which, which isn't huge, not even you know, not a vast vast amount, but I used that to pay the down po- the deposit on on uh, a little house in East Ham at the <laughs> time. And I just it was just honestly, I did it wasn't planned. Oh, I'm going to do this. It's going to be whatever. I just had these things. I knew that I wanted to make projects that. I wanted to do like a kind of in inverted commas psychedelic African thing, with heavy percussion, big instruments. Bonjo and myself put this project together. Mark Stewart was adding the political edge because Mark was always, hey Adrian, check this, learn this, t- re- teaching me things. I had Harry's energy for the other projects, and then meeting people like Judy Nylon doing non reggae things and other stuff. It just it just all reflected the people amongst us you know, and I was recording them and getting the spices and flavours. It's like cooking.
0: <laughs> Let's talk a bit about about the sort of protocol, if you like, of dub and reggae, because I think that um for anyone who is maybe a bit sort of less familiar or le- less into dub and reggae, or, or even a kind of beginner to it, it can be almost quite overwhelming as a more, well, more than a genre, but there's a, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of overlapping, interlocking people uh, to learn about, studios and producers and different kind of characters and, and that kind of thing. I think our new sound sort of reflects that way of working, right? And it's, you know, dub being this reversal of the way that music had been made to that point, right? So the studio itself is the instrument and the producer, the mixer, becomes this overall architect of the sound, which is quite... Now we see that as quite normal, I think, the idea that a pop producer is the person who writes the song. But that's something that that you could argue that dub invented, really. And I think there's a different idea of, of ownership, perhaps, like the idea of overdubs, versions, rhythms, like things overlapping, existing different ways. And then the way that you were working with this kind of loose collective where you had people who you could call on, bring in you'd have different formations I mean all of that is really in opposition to how the record industry at the time was working I guess and and maybe how the music industry would rather work how much of that was out of circumstance and how how much of it was maybe a bit more sort of ideological
1: okay well with the area I came from and a lot of black music there were rhythm sections like you know it's not like a band of mates like Who are good, are okay, and they get this chemistry, and they set the world on fire. If you look at the Jamaican history or or or, or the soul uh, productions, Tamla Motown, they had a brilliant rhythm section, an in-house rhythm section. Uh, Booker T and the MGS who who backed Al Green, and they 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 were a professional, brilliant rhythm section. In Jamaica, you had um, a lot of rhythm sections. Skin, Flesh and Bones, which was Sly Dunbar and Lloyd Parks, which they eventually become Sly and Robbie when he teamed up with Robbie. You then got Roots Radix. It goes on and on and on. But there there were professional musicians that played to a very, very high standard, so the rhythms were brilliant. We in England were making a band. It wasn't a professional rhythm section to the level you had in Jamaica. So you had Aswad, uh, Steel Pulse. We had Creation Rebel. You could go on and on and on. There are are, uh, many, many great English bands, you know, the reggae regular, Mutumbi, and we had to find our own flavour. I kept trying to get our rhythm section as good as I could with the access to the players I had, but I was still thinking of it in terms of making a rhythm section. And the unique and great thing about reggae, what all reggae fans like, is what they call version. Because if you make one of these rhythms and they're very good... Unique to Jamaican music is version. You've got remixes where you've got lots of different versions of a song. But with um, what we all love, the reggae fans, you'll have 40, 50-plus people on one rhythm, on some of the actual legendary rhythms. And people always want to hear another interpretation or version of that rhythm. And dub was just one of those things. So rather than the whole rhythm, it'd be stripped down to an instrumental version, which is how it started, and then on and on. So me in England, I was thinking, well, if I make these good enough, I can use them two or three times. I could put Harry on it, Mark could sing on it, or we could put a (laughs) melodica on it and have another version. But I didn't do it as well as, obviously, they do it there, so ours were a bit whatever. But we used some of the drum tracks a couple of times. We did have versions. I had three versions, four or five versions of some of our rhythms. And that doesn't... I still can't understand why if you've got a great track, you know, from the States. They haven't got five people on the same track. They haven't usually because of money, because of lawyers and because of things like that. But the one thing that reggae fans will always want is more cuts or more of what they love. And I tried to do that when I was making the rhythms. I tried to make them of a certain standard. That's what I was trying to do. Or make it so that nobody could copy what we were doing and things like that. I, I I was I don't know, I was a bit uh, ego a bit of a, a bit ego mad at the time, thinking, right, we can change the world, we can change the world, you know. But <laughs> when you're twenty two, twenty-three, you 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 need to have those things or think you can do some magic.
0: I wanted to ask you a bit about a few sort of specific artists. So a lot of the major early on you sound outfits were basically, as you were describing, kind of Vehicles for your own ideas and different versions, right? So Creation Rebel, African Head Charge, Missing Brazilians, they're all different angles on a similar thing that you're controlling at the time, right? We could talk about all of them, but I wanted to know about African Head Charge and particularly about about Bonjo and where he'd sort of come from and his lineage, because I think that's quite an interesting aspect of of that period. Well,
1: uh, Bonjo is from a Rasta community up in the hills in Jamaica and Hanover. Not far from where Lee Perry comes from, actually, but like a re- kind of remote, proper old Rasta community. He came to England. He had a few little issues when he was here. Um, and he was a very strong man. You know, he, he was like, could lift up a car. You know, he was like a kind of st- strong as an ox and a bit of a character. But he 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 got into jazz and Cuban rhythms as well. And when I met him... Um, he, he joined the latter stages of Croatian Rebel, our band. He played in Croatian Rebel for a while, and Croatian Rebel was originally a studio name that I'd had. Now, named it wasn't a proper band. It became one. We developed it. Crucial Tony and myself and um, Lizard and Doctor Pablo. We developed it into a live band to back Prince Farai. Eventually, sadly, Lizard had to go. Lizard had to go to Her Majesty's Service for some weird business. And it was the end of the band. By then, I I, I was under so much pressure economically. I just switched into doing other things. And um, I'd started the Croatian Rebel. I started the Singers and Players project. But what I had done right at the end of Croatian Rebel, I thought, I... Um, I read an interview with Brian Eno saying about, he had a vision of a psychedelic Africa. And I thought, yeah, that's really pretentious idiot, you know, but then I thought about it and thought, no, that's brilliant. That's a really good idea. We've got Bonjo here who loves African rhythms. I wanted to experiment. So I started by taking a drum track. I had stripping it down, copying it, playing over it, putting, um, I played bass on it. I'm not even a proper bass player. I got, my then wife, to tune it for me. I just kind of hammered these bass lines. Bonjo (laughs) played percussion, and we started experimenting, slowing down tapes, distorting things, playing things through speakers in a toilet, and made this kind of mad record, My Life in a Hole in the Ground. But it was built around Bonjo's percussion playing and the idea of having heavy rhythms. Like, if you look at Jamaican music, they don't use the great big drums or... Congas. They would tend to use tiny drums like um, bongos or shakers. So all the chat they were talking about Africa, back to Africa and, and whatever and they might have voop, 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 the funde and Iabingi stuff the Rastafarian thing but they weren't really using the big drums so we started experimenting using the big drums and that was the beginning of the first Head album which is it's now 40 years ago and uh, bon- Bonjo, though, is, you know, he, he could have been a professional boxer. He could have done anything. He was like a big, strong uh, strong character. And Bonjo, he, he was Rastafarian and he, he believed in, you know, the whole Garveyist back to Africa movement. And he, he lives in Africa. I spoke to him yesterday. He's in a place called Botatanga in Ghana. And he's got family and, you know, kids out in, in Africa. And uh, he's he's a great grandfather. Wow.
0: Right. Over those years, I think one of the really impressive things about what you were doing was achieving something like a kind of erasure of genre. Like we keep talking about dub dub reggae and obviously that is the, the deep affiliation. But at the same time, you were bringing so many other things in by virtue of the variety of players that you actually had on, people like Lowell Coxhill or Mark Stewart, obviously. And I I wanted to just mention a couple of people who I think stand out for being quite different as well, which is Judy Nylon and Annie Anxiety, who in many ways don't really fit into any of the other things that are going on. But as voices and as personalities, perhaps perhaps they did in some ways. Can you tell me a little bit about both of those two? And the Judy Nylon especially... It's one of my favourites and I think deserves a flashier reissue bundle. I would pay a lot for that.
1: <laughs> no, we, we'd like to release it. I mean, she actually owns that record I, I, and she doesn't want it to oh. be. She doesn't want. We tried to. I oh, said, to, let it. us release it. You have all the money. She, she hasn't won it. Th- that was a bit of a messy situation. The, the record was financed by Virgin Music. They asked me to get involved in the production and I worked with Judy on the production. She she had a very distinctive idea. She wanted the voice right in your face. She had some great players. She introduced me to Nick Plitas. I had some of ours, like Sean Oliver, bless him as well, great player, and brought in Chris Joyce and some other people. And I'm very, I'm very pleased that record, um you know, you know, what happened, we were I, I was convinced that record was going to be very successful at the time. But Virgin couldn't get a deal for it. So the man at the publishing company got us to release it. I was hoping that was going to come out on a big label and I'd get some credit as being producer, co-producer of that, of that record. And then I don't think Judy was happy how it all played out. And then um, I, I'd love to see that record come out again. It's not been available. Annie Anxiety, little Annie, she's like family. She's like very close. Um, I met her at Southern Studios through the band Crass. Penny Rambo, Pete, um, Steve Ignorant and everybody. And she was one of their artists. And my friend, John Loder, who ran Southern Studios, he asked if I'd uh, produce a record with her. And that's how So we ended up doing two or three albums together.
0: Mm. Yeah, and just for for clarity, uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with either of those, the reason that they're related in some sense is because they come from a sort of, downtown New York punk scene type of milieu and uh yeah two American women singers on the label which just is this kind of nice contrast with everything else that's going on and they bring something that's quite you know they're not the same voice but they have a certain kind of raw bluesy energy I guess both of them are punk energy quite soon after that then or or maybe it's all around the same time you you meet Keith Keith LeBlanc who is about to join you in Tackhead and to me it seems that around this time which i guess is sort of 84 ish the label takes a different direction somehow it's like a, a little bit of a reboot in some way and the Tackhead records again are, i mean i i've had a lot of fun <laughs> researching this particular conversation but i do love the Tackhead records so much and i think that i think they've aged really well they definitely sound of their time in a lot of ways, but they were also doing something that was so new for that time and and you know was to become really quite influential. Could you tell me about the kind of genesis of Tatca and what it was that you were trying to do with that because it, it does seem like it was quite a definite departure from some of the other or new projects to that point.
1: Ironically we've just been we've just made the first new material tahead record for 30 years. We've been doing it working online. it's only mental. Well, that's another story but wow um, that's exciting what well, well, you've got to bear in mind I'll, I'll go back to the thing about rhythm sections yeah. you know Doug Skip and Keith are a premier League rhythm section they played the message you know don't push me because I'm close to the edge they white lines they play they played all those great um, songs for Sugar Hill so when I met Keith he was uh, um, it had all gone wrong at Sugar Hill They were in court. He was in court with Sugar Hill, and he wasn't very happy, to put it mildly. And he was working with Tommy Boy, and he did Malcolm X No Sellout. He did that tune. And I told him I'd been running a label since I was 17, and he couldn't believe it. And we got on well. I went to the studio with him in New York and watched him playing for for David, uh, Sylvain Sylvain, rather. Or was it Edgar Winter or something? He was doing some session for Tommy. And I thought, wow, he's nuts. And then I heard his programming, and then I said, do you want to, you know, come to England for a laugh? And he he come over, and he and I did the first record together, and then he introduced me to Doug and Skip, and we started backing Mark Stewart on some gigs, doing our own thing on the gigs, and basically evolved. And I don't know if you've heard Major Malfunction, but it's a Keith LeBlanc, but that's a Tackhead record as well, basically. We, we you know, that for... for a four year five year period there we we were um doing we were really doing some very, very out there stuff
0: when I first discovered Typked, I was quite struck by how it seemed to anticipate a lot of things that were kind of on the cusp of happening in other genres as well, like public enemy it made me think of so much you know that news on the beat that's a decent enough description of what they were doing as well, so later on in the eighties, I was kind of curious about how you felt when the kind of Acid House moment came in 1988 and how the label fit in with Rave as it arrived? Because there's a kind of interesting turning point in the, into the 90s as Dub and Dub Reggae be- become attached to the Rave movement in a, a certain, perhaps sort of unexpected way. What did you make of Acid House when it arrived? Like, were you still going out by that I was, was, yeah. No,
1: I, I, I used to go, every few weeks I'd go out to Dungeons, which was like a club on Leighbridge Road. It was like a big, a brilliant, brilliant club. Uh, my friend Leo would go down there and it was like everybody was cuddling each other. It was actually brilliant because you'd had a lot of the football violence and trouble in the 80s. Heisel and um, there was, you know, Thatcher was trying to, you know, actually liked to have closed football down amongst other things. It was, it was evil, but um, it was like... Leprosy, And then suddenly, you know, and there was a lot of football violence and things had happened. Suddenly along came, came rave music and ecstasy. And it was actually one of the most enlightening times probably since the 60s. It was revolutionary. It was great. Uh, for me, I didn't want to suddenly start I, I did quite a lot of dance tunes, and I had a few successes, a couple of uh, chart hits with uh, Human Nature and um another couple of tunes, and I did quite a few mixes. But for me, listening to boof, 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 for eight hours on one song, trying to do it, in hindsight, I wish I'd actually ventured in it a bit more and, and uh, grabbed myself a bit of money, but I just couldn't bear it. So I, d- I stuck to my gun still and kept doing African Head Charge kept doing a bit more left-field stuff. Um, but I did intersperse it with a few things that were semi-successful. And a lot of people approached me to work with them, which I I should have done, again, worked with a lot of great artists that I, I, I didn't. But I, I really believed that what I was doing, or what we were doing, our crew, was going to be ten times more successful than it was. Like an idiot, I stuck to my guns. But I'm not really, I think it's good, because in hindsight you could probably become really successful doing something that your heart and soul isn't into, and then you're left as a shell because you've emptied emptied everything out. Yeah, absolutely. In something that's not yours, you know.
0: But there were a few records in that period that seemed to sort of strike a chord, maybe in slightly unexpected ways, like Dub Syndicate becoming a kind of chill-out album, a kind of ambient room album. That It's interesting how some aspects of dub reggae kind of found new... Uh, sort of functions within a rave
1: scene i guess well stoned Immaculate was like the uh, a massive album on the rave scene a lot of people loved it um and you know we, we were still getting um you know the head charge the you know the the the, the songs of praise and um Shashamani as, as it went into the 90s you know i know i know that a lot of people were influenced by by us and every time i meet i met some really good artists and they start oh, you know i you know really the label really influenced me or this was really good. That made me feel really, really great anyway. I wasn't even, you know, I was making records for us and I just tried to stick to my guns. And a couple of times with my life collapsing a bit, um, it all went wrong a little bit at the beginning of the 90s and then in about in the mid-90s as well, I had a couple of pretty bad uh, periods and you have to kind of regroup yourself. That's how it goes.
0: What did you think about that? Sort of period musically, though, because I, I was thinking a little bit about the way that, you know, by the time you got further into the 90s, you'd have proper kind of like free party type people, white dreadlocks or whatever, <laughs> being into something like Revolutionary Dub Warriors. And then, you know, I can't, I can't help but notice that one of your own records is called Never Trust a Hippie. And I just wondered if you've felt any sort of. Uh, you know, antagonism between newer people who were taking up music who were definitely not punks, or perhaps it had come full circle in some way?
1: Well, I, I don't. I mean, I'm I'm not very judgmental. I, I, if somebody, if I fell out with somebody, whatever, or, or they pissed me off, it's not worth holding. It's like, I'm not judgmental. If somebody wants to dress or do whatever, as long as you're not hurting anybody, it's like, cool, entertain me, let me watch the show. With With the... White dready thing, whatever. Why not? It didn't, didn't, it didn't bother me at all. I would never have uh, dreadlocks because I'm bald, and I wouldn't have had them if I could. N- nor, nor anymore would I talk in a fake Jamaican <laughs> accent. But if some, you know, if somebody wants to, that's their business. You know, I, um, I, I could understand people were trying to get involved, relate to it, and it was always people who could drop out in the '60s. You can't drop out anymore. Unless you go to Wales, maybe. Sorry, I know I love Wales, but the, you know you can't. Where, where do you drop out now? A lot of people, you know, were going on the road, the travelling. You know, there was some, some of those communities then in that period you're talking. The, the rave post rave scene um, was very very healthy, and the fact they might have had dreadlocks just, didn't bother me in the least. To be honest, I just uh, I, I, I met some of the nicest loveliest people you, you can ever meet.
0: Why, why is it that you should never trust a hippie then? You said it.
1: Well, the hippies, really. I find the hippies were more like the kind of record company people, the Richard Bransons or
0: yeah, people yeah, like, okay. you know,
1: who um, <laughs> were like, hey, man, you know, let's help you, man, you know. And, like, I saw that, at, you know, places. And, you know, you put so much hope in, th- you know, I saw something like Rough Trade, to me, was like the answer. It was absolutely brilliant, the model. But then other people want to be rich, and you know certain people in in organisations. And then other great people get trodden on. And then you know somebody you know like masquerading as like a kind of um, uh, you know a, a hippie, nice kind of person, and you're in fact like a a breadhead. You know, it's like uh, hey, whatever. It was it was a comment John Lydon made, and I thought it was really good. Never trust a hippie, And my mate Bob and me were chatting. He said oh, that would be. That'd be quite an amusing name because our record came out on Real World. We thought put an album out called Real World, through Real World, call it Never Trust a Hippie. And I actually love Peter Gable, he was a great bloke. He's done a lot for music, total respect. But it was uh, for the reasons I said, and also it kind of tickled my sense of humour.
0: Yeah, so you went back to Solar Records in uh, well this this century, uh, and you've collaborated with Pinch a couple of times as well. I, I was wondering a little bit about creativity for you when it comes to making your own records. Has has your creativity been like a constant stream of activity for you? Like, have you do you keep up with doing creative things even if you're not releasing records, or do you kind of need to wait for something a bit more? waiting for inspiration to strike a little bit
1: i'm not a musician i'm not a musician i'm in the orthodox sense at all i play a mixing desk i make noises i like organizing things and doing stuff so you've got i've gone through periods when you feel to be honest if you don't feel at your best and you can go through the motions doing a gig is 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 a different thing to actually coming and hitting some sparks when you're making music I've I, at the moment I feel like I'm in a very good position. The last few things I've done, I did a lovely album um, with my daughter Denise. I don't know if you've heard that. I did a lovely al- album with Lee Perry a couple of years ago. Very very proud of that. Rainford and Heavy Rain, and I've currently got some. Um, the last Pay It All Back was a little taster, but I've got a few records. I'm ready. To, I'm going to get ready to to uh, hit the ground running after I'm allowed out of my. Um, Big Brother cell here to go and uh, <laughs> do some stuff, and you know I'm going to keep making tunes to like drop, and I haven't got anything else, or I haven't got anything else to do, anything else to offer. But it's just, um, I'm just very glad I've gone through each of these decades you've talked about because each one's got something. I can see how when the reggae was blown away by teng mm. I can see when when the rave music scene came, you know, with the, the, the acid house. Then with bands, you know the Weatherall's impact on 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 dance music, the impact of DJs, you, you know, um, Oki and uh, Weatherall and Steve and all those guys, the impact they had on uh, guitar bands, and then the the you know the development into jungle and the evolution of bass music. It's uh, I've been there watching it all, but I I, I didn't want to try and jump into anybody else's um, boots, you know. So if I did anything, the collaboration with Pinch was a very, to me, a very normal, good idea because here I was working as I had with the Roots Radix rhythm section with style or with the Sugar Hill rhythm section. Here I was working with a person who was great in, his, in the area he'd come from the school, the dubstep school, and he and I tried to do something that, again, I thought would sell 10 times more than it did. <laughs> but although I'm very proud of it. I thought it would, um, but I think it fell between two stools. I think that perhaps well, it didn't quite fit in um, the, the my era or his, but I, I'd stand mm-hmm. by those records and say I'm very proud of them. And, but sod it, you know, you, you, you have to, if you're making music to try and make money, you're going to have a short life. If you make yeah, stuff yeah. and you do what you like yourself, you might have a chance of, um, of lasting lost the duration.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just another thing about the, the legacy then. I think obviously um, the arrival of dubstep was probably one entryway for a lot of people into on you sound for sure.
1: Pinch or yeah,
0: well yeah, but going back to actually the, the original dubstep era, I'm sure that may have been a way for people to go back and and discover dub and on you sound as well. And uh, I, I'm sure that you were probably you know following the development of other you know dub and bass cultures of. Jungle and Dubstep and you know the, the kind of lineage um, and I also was thinking about the so when Trevor Jackson did the science fiction dance hall collection which kind of put a spotlight on this particular seam of On You Sound Records that kind of connected up this like particular kind of you know d- dance floor thing that you could pick up on multiple records and I think that was Probably a a big thing, again, for a new generation discovering or a new sound. Definitely a big record for me to discover the catalogue when it came out. Um, I wondered, like, does it ever surprise you the way that other people hear the legacy or the way that other people think of it, I guess? It does,
1: yeah. I mean, I would I would never have released that record. I mean, bless him, Trevor. No, Trevor, you know, there, to me it was a lot of kind of stuff. I just I wasn't even on my radar. Wow. Because when I made stuff, I, I seldom play it. So play it so much when it's done. I'll then play it out on gigs, and then I won't play it for twenty-five years, twenty Sick years. Of it. <laughs> um, and then somebody suddenly says, "Oh, I really like that tune," or if I go out and I hear something, I think I recognise that, and you realise it was something you'd done. It's quite amusing, <laughs> but I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't have done it. So i really, I'm really glad Trevor did that because it, uh, it's somebody coming in with a different. Or Patrick Doctor, my friend, who's been listening to, see, listening to things. Oh, I love that. I love that. And do this, do that. It's like all right. And you give trust to somebody to kind of re reintroduce you from from a completely out of your safety zone, different thing that you, you choose yourself.
0: Final question then. I just wanted to ask a little bit about Ramsgate because this is – because you have been – you know, you don't just live there sort of in some semi-retirement. Like, it's a really active music town, I guess. Um, Tell us about it.
1: Well, I moved down here because my my youngest daughter, she was here and she was young – and I thought, if I haven't got that time with her, it's gone. And I was going through a bit of a bad time in my life. This was 11 years ago. She's since, uh, last couple of years ago, she's left here and she's just she's living in Muswell Hill and she's had a baby. So I'm down here on my own and I couldn't afford to move. But um, no, no, I love Ramsgate. Ramsgate's great. <laughs> Sell it. But, but since I came here, a lot of my friends have been to visit and they moved down here. So because of Emily, my daughter... There's a lot of people now call here home. So Congo Natty, he he came to visit. He and his family, his lovely family, they live here. Ghetto Priest, Skip McDonald, Ashley Beadle, Clem Bushy, the great man produced Tappazook. He's man of warrior, and he basically one of the one of the inventors of Lover's Rock. He lives 200 yards from me. Adamski, 50 yards from from us. Um, there's there's more I'm forgetting lots. Uh, Bobby Marshall. Who, who looks after me and work with me and Asian Dub Foundation. The, uh, my, my One of my best friends, Leo, he's down here as well. We've got a lot of very, very healthy, healthy people. And then just down the road, we've obviously got Margate, and that's uh, full of uh, DFLs, they call them here, down from Londoners. Then up the road, you've got Broadstairs, which is like a more of a retirement place for the older ones.
0: It, it should be explained that all these places are seaside towns i think you could i think you could call them faded seaside towns i don't think that would be unfair um but charming in their own way and i just wanted to touch on one other thing which i discovered had happened in ramsgate some time ago i expect it probably won't happen again but what was shantytown in ramsgate
1: oh great well well, shantytown uh we're very proud of it my friend nigel Askew, who owns the queen charlotte pub which is a, a very great pub and we had some incredible nights there but May, uh, several years ago maybe eight years ago now we, we started seven or eight years ago we sh- started shantytown and we had um the lease on these massive arches that fit 250 plus people in down on the seafront and we had no electric and no running water that they were the storage areas for a club called nero's but they're like you know very very old and we decorated it up put generators in there put loos in there all with no electricity and we put a dozen or so events on only but um, being in a reggae sound system, um, I'd be DJing, and I'd have... I had down. I've had Mungos, Dennis Bevel, I've had uh, Ito Horns, Daddy Freddy, um, Pinch, um, on and on, we had some incredible nights there, and it was legendary status in in Ramsgate. The council eventually, uh, just last year, evicted us from there. (laughs) They, They took it away from us. But we didn't do that many, but the ones we did... It looked like a cross between uh, an 18th century inn and a massive blues dance. It was it was very, very special. And, you know, we might try again, but it's, it's, putting anything on with councils and bureaucracy is uh, it's tough. But we'll rebrand Shantytown and probably put some events on another venue on a bigger scale.
0: Excellent. I, this is what I want to hear at the moment. I want to hear people planning, Blue Sky thinking for this roadmap out of lockdown or whatever it's yeah that would be exciting adrian thank you very very much for that quick tour through our new sound there's so much more we could have covered but thank you so much you've been listening to relevant parties from carhartt work in progress if you want to dive into more music from the labels in this series check out the relevant parties playlist on spotify you can find the link in the show notes and remember, you can subscribe to Relevant Party so that you never miss an episode. It's available wherever good podcasts are found. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts. We'd really love to know what you think. So thanks for listening, and join me next time for more stories behind the world's best record labels.